2: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Climate change is, let's face it, a very real danger. To low-lying areas, to crops, to water supplies. But it's also a danger to all kinds of businesses. It's hard to know exactly how exposed various companies are but few are dealing with that exposure at all. As with curbing emissions, the time to tackle the problem is now. And Andre Previn was something of a showman, writing tunes for Hollywood films and living a visibly glitzy lifestyle. But our obituaries editor found much more, a composer who couldn't put down his pencil, a conductor of the world's great orchestras, and a secret after-hours jazz man. First up, though, this month marks 60 years since an uprising by the people of Tibet against Communist Party rule.
1: The streets of Lhasa, where once the rebels arrogantly strutted, are now thronged with 20,000 citizens who celebrate the putting down of the rebels and welcome the inauguration of their new life.
2: Until the Communist Revolution of 1949, Tibet had enjoyed a degree of independence, But after their victory, the authorities in China sent in their troops.
3: Throughout the length and breadth of China,
1: 650 million people hailed the victory over the rebels in Tibet.
2: The uprising of March 1959 is an event mourned by the Tibetan people and supporters of their cause. Yesterday, protesters gathered in New Delhi and other cities around the world to mark the anniversary and to call for Tibet's independence. China's Communist Party records the events of 1959 rather differently.
1: Tibet. Tibet is an integral part of China. Oppose intervention in China's internal affairs. Build a happy and prosperous new Tibet.
0: Chinese officials call March the sensitive month across the Tibetan plateau. James Miles is our China editor. Every year... The month of March uh, is one that causes them extreme anxiety. And this year, because it's the 60th anniversary of the uh, Tibetan uprising of 1959, uh, they've made it very clear that their anxiety has reached even higher levels than usual. Why is the month of March so sensitive? Many Tibetans still remember with bitterness what happened in 1959 In early March of that year in Lhasa, rumors began to spread that the Chinese authorities were preparing to abduct the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, And so as those rumors spread, uh, crowds began to gather and uh, the authorities began to get nervous. About a week after protests began to uh, erupt on, on March the 10th, 1959, a week after that, Uh, The Dalai Lama fled into uh, exile in India where he has remained ever since. And the unrest in Lhasa escalated, became uh, violent, shooting broke out. It was a very uh, violent period, suppressed ruthlessly by the the Chinese government. And uh, many Tibetans today still yearn for the Dalai Lama to return. That looks extremely unlikely.
2: How have things gone since then?
0: From a Tibetan perspective, terribly. Tibet's own brand of of the Buddhist religion um, suffered uh, huge blows during uh, Mao's rule. Uh, Monks were expelled from monasteries. Things began to recover um, after the reign of Mao, um, but the Chinese government's suspicion of of, of Tibetan Buddhism, suspicion of the control, uh, the influence of the Dalai Lama, even though um, uh, he has been living in exile in India, has remained uh, very high. Um, And there's one thing that really unites most Tibetans, and that is huge reverence for the Dalai Lama, Uh, himself. Uh, So the Chinese government's relentless attacks on him, denunciations of him have created a great deal um, of resentment among Tibetans.
2: And so what's your experience been when when visiting Tibet?
0: Well I was there in uh, 2008 uh, when riots broke out in Lhasa and this was the, the biggest outbreak of unrest since the uprising in 1959. It involved uh, attacks by Tibetan uh, residents against uh, shops uh, run by ethnic Han Chinese, attacks on ethnic Han people. Uh, Since then, the authorities have been on an even greater uh, state of alert than usual. The sound you hear is tear gas. The first of several rounds. The townspeople run for cover. No one can tell us how many are hurt, but one eyewitness tells of monks being savagely beaten. Um, we've seen roundups of, of monks who were uh, supposed uh, to have been uh, allegedly behind this or simply um, because of their connections with the exile camp in in India. And in protest against this escalated repression across the Tibetan plateau, we've seen uh, more than 150 people who've set fire to themselves in in protest against uh, these measures, and um, uh, many of them have died.
2: So, how have religious minorities fared under President Xi Jinping? How have things been more recently?
0: Well, there's been a general tightening of uh, control over religions. Um, Xi Jinping would like to achieve what he calls the sinicization of religion in China. And that includes uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, We'd seen, even before Xi Jinping came to power, the declaration uh, in Tibet of what they call serfs emancipation day. Um, that's another uh, big anniversary coming up. It's on March the 28th. And it's the day in 1959, after the Tibetan uprising, when China formally dissolved the Dalai Lama-led government and ushered in, as they would uh, describe it, a, a new era of uh, a democracy and uh, freedom in Tibet. Freedom, that is, from monastic control. Uh, But more generally, in neighboring Xinjiang, we've seen an extraordinary escalation of repression uh, over the past couple of years. A million odd people uh, seized and put into um, what they call uh, re-education centers. And it seems uh, very often the only pretext for doing so is simply uh, because these people are devotees of Islam. Um, The authorities uh, defend this as a way of preventing the spread of uh, militancy among uh, ethnic Uyghurs uh, in in, uh, the the Xinjiang region. Um, uh, But uh, this is part of a general repression that we've seen across the board in China.
2: I wonder if the the sort of increased focus on Xinjiang and what's going on there has sort of drawn attention away from Tibetans. I mean, there there was a time when there was a lot of activism and there were a lot of you know there were Hollywood stars were coming to the, to sort of draw attention to the plight of the Tibetans, and we haven't heard much of that.
0: Well, I, I think that's partly because uh, the uh, authorities have, have been so effective in in uh, shutting down access uh, to the region i think sympathy with the tibetan plight abroad remains at um, at very high levels it's just that uh, we haven't seen large protests break out there uh, but i can imagine that um, attention would uh, swing rapidly again to tibet uh, where we uh, to see uh, trouble there and the authorities are always uh, mindful of, of one big event looming and that is uh, one day uh, the death of the dalai lama uh, that will be A huge blow to many Tibetans. And if there is one thing that the authorities fear might trigger large-scale unrest again, it is that.
2: James, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Thank you. There's something of an overlooked risk for many businesses around the world, potentially a catastrophic one. My colleague Anne McElvoy investigated which way the wind is blowing.
4: Climate change is fueling extreme weather. Climate scientists are recording stronger and more frequent hurricanes, floods and wildfires.
3: One of the main hazards to property and business function is the projectiles that the wind picks up and hurls at a building during a storm.
4: Lewis Grizzo is head of research at an engineering and insurance firm, FM Global. Deep in a forest in Rhode Island, he runs a facility that replicates fires, floods and high winds to figure out how clients should build. One recent success was when a drug production facility they advised in Puerto Rico survived Hurricane Maria.
3: It all starts with understanding what are the wind speeds that you need to protect against? And in Puerto Rico, we protect against 175 mile an hour wind speeds, which means that the roof, which is kind of the first line of defense, and the sides of the building need to maintain integrity. In other words, they need to stay intact during a storm with that wind speed. The Mylon facility was designed, the systems were tested and certified to meet those criteria, and it was in business the next day.
4: Often, though, Mr Gritzo sees a tendency among businesses to be complacent about planning for the worst.
3: Because it hasn't happened to them, they feel it won't happen to them, or if it does happen to them, it won't be that bad.
4: But there's growing evidence that it could well be that bad.
5: Companies have faced climate-related risks since times immemorial. They've always had to deal with floods, storms, droughts, and so on and so forth.
4: Jan Piotrowski has been reporting on the environment for The Economist.
5: But these things, these extreme events, these climatic disruptions are becoming much more frequent and and much more severe and are likely to be even more frequent and uh, even fiercer um, in the future.
4: So exactly what sort of risks are we talking about here?
5: These consequences can range from um, the obvious things like rising sea levels, which might for instance, flood uh, coastal production facilities. It might mean hurricanes which sweep away factories. Some of the impacts are a little bit less obvious. So, for instance, uh, rising water temperature in rivers means that power plants are no longer able to draw this water for cooling because it exceeds the temperature which safety limits place on such installations.
4: Can you please put some numbers for us on how concerned
5: we ought to be? Uh, some asset uh, managers uh, looked at 11,000 listed companies globally and found that, uh, on average... Climate-related impacts, so physical risk, could shave two to three percent of their enterprise value. Now, the problem is that that might not seem a lot because a company can lose, you know, two to three percent in a day. But the the range is rather large. Some companies could stand to lose twenty percent. And the problem is that most companies have absolutely no idea how exposed to these risks they are.
4: And that seems like quite an important part of any business model that wants to have a viable future. So what's your explanation for why companies aren't planning more
5: for it? Well, so one reason is that companies have a lot on their mind, right? There is a lot of short-term disruption from economic downturns, trade war, Brexit. They have to worry about artificial intelligence, the future of work. They're pestered by uh, activists um, uh, to reduce their carbon footprints, which is a different thing than adapting to the effects of climate change. So this is not necessarily something that's at front and center on their minds. But that's not the only reason. I mean, another very important reason is that data about exactly how companies are exposed are few and far between. Scientists are very comfortable talking about general trends. They are much more reluctant to say that a particular plant in a particular location in the foreseeable future is at risk of experiencing some sort of climatic disruption.
4: But what if I'm running a company on a tight budget and I read that I'm meant to prepare for climate disruption, it costs money, and I worry that the market, at least in the short term, isn't going to reward my good virtue
5: ethics. But so, it's not so much, so the thing is, this isn't about virtue ethics, right? It's about your, the long term or medium term sustainability of your business. That's, that's what makes it different to um, a lot of the sort of, you know, greenwash that you, that you get from companies. Climate impacts, um, climate affects the operations of companies directly. So if you're looking beyond the short term horizon, of of investors and you want your company to prosper in the sort of medium to long run, you really ought to be doing this because uh, you ought to be facing up to these threats and problems uh, because that will, in the longer run, guarantee the sustainability of your profit margin.
4: And right now, there are no rules requiring a company to do this kind of digging or analysis.
5: Well, for the time being, there are sort of voluntary standards which have been elaborated by a body called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And uh, and these these standards are very laudable. Um, they concern both, you know, disclosures about physical risks, like the ones we've been talking about, as well as mm-hmm. risks, for instance, of, of having your assets stranded if uh, nobody, you know, nobody wants coal-fired power anymore. They all want solar.
4: So is there a way to get business to really take this to heart?
5: One way to ensure that, that, that companies take this seriously and that, and that shareholders are, are fully aware of, of the exposure of companies is to make such standards uh, not voluntary but mandatory.
4: And do you think that if business did take the effects of climate change more seriously, it would catalyse further efforts to reduce warming? Or is that a bit of a phrase that sometimes floats around, greenwash?
5: well I, I you know a lot of companies are actually you know trying to do a little bit, and I think some of it is for reputational reasons, and some of it is as you say greenwash uh, but some of them are you know genuinely concerned because they're staffed by people who are genuinely concerned about about global warming and I think that if you really understand the threat of that climate change poses the sort of and you understand the sort of impacts that you you might have to anticipate, and this becomes Clearer in the minds of decision makers, it could, um, I'm not saying it necessarily will, but it could uh, make them think a little bit more carefully about doing more in order to curb climate change in the first place.
4: Thank you very much for joining us, Jan.
5: Thank you.
6: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question, it's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovation's paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.
2: After International Women's Day celebrations on Friday... Attention is focused on sustaining the conversation around women's rights and access to education. In this week's episode of The Economist Asks, Anne McElvoy chatted with the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, about how to get more men and boys involved in feminism.
4: Do you think we need to be better about selling this to men and boys? Do we get a bit trapped in sort of almost behaving as if it's only a subject for women? What do we need to just do differently there?
1: You know, it's interesting because they're not separate conversations. But for men to understand, they can be feminists as well. I mean, I think when we talk about gender stereotypes shifting, what it means for to be masculine, what it means to be feminine, you know, I've said for a long time, you can be feminine and a feminist. You can be masculine, and I think in terms of masculinity, you understand that your strength includes knowing your vulnerabilities and your sense of self and security, your confidence, Comes in knowing that a woman by your side, not behind you, is actually something that you shouldn't be threatened about. But as opposed to that, you should feel really empowered in having that additional support that this is really about us working together. That's what gender equality means for me.
2: To hear the full episode, download The Economist Asks, available wherever you listen. Our obituaries editor, Anne Rowe, has been writing about a composer, musician, and conductor. Whose defining moment came when he made the switch from his work in films to the classical world of london
1: when andre previn arrived in london in 1969 He looked exactly like a Hollywood star, not least because he had Mia Farrow on his arm, who was the ex-wife of Frank Sinatra. So he seemed to have stepped straight out of Los Angeles. Something to do with the hair, which was cut in a pudding bowl, the jackets, the flared trousers. You couldn't quite believe that this man was a serious classical musician. He loved Hollywood. You have to remember that he'd been born in Berlin... The family was half Jewish, and so in the 1930s, things were getting rather dangerous for them. They went to California because his father had a relative out there in the studios. So he came at 10 to this paradise of a place where the sun seemed to shine all the time, where all the girls were beautiful, and he just fell into that life.
5: Hollywood, California became the movie capital of the world. Huge movie studios sprang up and began to turn out millions of feet of entertainment a year.
1: He had begun when he was still at high school in California by making backing tracks for radio programmes. And he'd been spotted by somebody at MGM and they took him on to write film music. His first complete film score. He wrote in 1949, and that was for a film starring Lassie the dog. The
2: most exciting challenge to the most famous dog in the world. Challenge
1: to Lassie. His greatest moment in Hollywood came when he won Oscars for arranging and recording film scores for films such as Gigi. And my fair lady. With one enormous
3: chair, it be lovely
1: The classical music had always been there in his life. He started piano at the age of five at his request. He did an enormous amount to make classical music popular by bringing some of that sort of film star relaxation and that ease with the media, which classical music and musicians hadn't really had before. And he brought it onto television, which was a big change.
2: Welcome to Fairfield Hall in Croydon for another music night with the London Symphony Orchestra. Now, tonight, all the music will come from either France or Spain.
1: And then there was the famous incident in 1971 when he was invited on to the Morecambe and Wise show, Morecambe and Wise being the kind of top comedy duo of the time.
0: Eric, say hello to Mr. Preview. Ah,
1: Mr. Preview, how
5: are you? <laughs> a pleasure to be with you
1: and ready when you are.
5: How two, minute. one, two, three.
1: And uh, they had all decided that Eric would play the Greek Piano Concerto with the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, which also came into the studio, while Andre Previn conducted, because he played it abysmally. (laughs) Previn went over and remonstrated with him. You're playing all the wrong notes. (laughs) And Eric Malkin picks him up by the lapels and says, I am playing all the right notes.
5: But not necessarily in the right order.
1: And this became such a famous line. And they'd also introduced him as Andrew Preview. And so this became his name among the working classes of London. And taxi drivers would lean out of their windows and shout, Andrew Preview. So all this uh, endeared him very much to the public. And indeed, it endeared him to the orchestra except to certain members who felt worried that he was galloping just too fast towards the popular side of things. In the course of writing the obit, I discovered he was a much deeper musician than I'd thought because I remember him as this figure who seemed rather lightweight, not a particularly serious musician. You tended to put him in the set of the swinging socialites and pop stars rather than in the classical music category. And that just shows that I had the normal prejudice of thinking of classical music as something rather refined and elitist. So I have learned a lot, and particularly about his fondness for jazz, which I never knew. He went on playing jazz for years and years, all the time he was conducting the great orchestras. He was also slipping out to do jazz in the evenings, which I find very endearing. So that is really, I think, a whole revision of the way I've seen him before.
2: Anne Rowe on Andre Previn, who's died aged 89. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
6: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash
3: economist.